Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 3rd of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Irish government has decided at this point to reintroduce the legal basis for hotel quarantine should it be deemed necessary uh, to introduce hotel quarantine in response to the threat posed by the Omicron variant. The World Health Organization is at pains to say we are in the middle of a deadly wave of a variant of coronavirus. That variant is called Delta. The World Health Organization designated the variant B11529, named Omicron, a variant of concern on the 26th of November. Omicron is a variant of concern and while much still needs to be learned about Omicron, that concern will come on top of the situation that we already find ourselves in. As the House will be aware, the Health Protection Surveillance Centre was notified of one confirmed case of Omicron in Ireland and uh, my expectation is we will be we will be seeing more. Travel restrictions apply now to seven countries in the southern region of Africa where Omicron was first discovered. We also announced that from the 3rd of December people travelling to Ireland regardless of vaccination or recovery status or travel history will be required to complete a pre-departure COVID test. And it may not end there. Unfortunately, these measures may not be enough. We all hope, obviously, they will be. With the increasing public health concern regarding the impact of the Omicron variant, and in particular, its impact on vaccination effectiveness or potential impact on vaccination effectiveness, hotel quarantine may be necessary for a limited time in the interest of the protection of public health and to control transmission. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Minister Damien English, uh, local Fine Gael TD for Meath West, joins us now. Good morning to you, Minister, and thanks indeed uh, for your time on the programme. It, it appears as though there's more to come, or quite possibly a, a lot more to come, uh, with more Neffet, at least coming from Neffet to government to consider. Good morning, Michael, and uh, thanks for having me on, and good morning to our listeners. Um, yeah, Michael, we never would have met uh, last night, and they've sent their letter uh, with recommendations and guidance and advice around that uh, to the Minister of Health this morning, I think under the last hour. Um, I have not seen that letter yet. I, I'm not aware of exactly what's in it. We, we can hear roughly what, what has been talked about. Um, so the process here is that the recommendations come from NEFID. 
we were expecting you know, some some recommendations from NEFA to, to arrive. That's why we have held off as a, as a government to announce the various supports that will be in place to see exactly what NEFA's advice what, what, what would recommend and the areas it would affect. Uh, so the process in government take that advice uh, and as quickly as they possibly can um, will go through that and make a decision whether to take that advice in full and implement it, make some changes to it, uh, wait a period of time, uh, and that's the decisions the government will have to make. Mm-hmm. Um, coming into this, Michael, uh, we've, we've always, I mean, the last time we made some adjustments and changes, I spoke with you, uh, and the aim was that it would affect uh, our, our behaviours. People have responded to that extremely well, mm-hmm. uh, have massively reduced their social contacts, have played their part to, to stabilise um, the numbers. They're still high and in terms of the number of cases, but they certainly have kind of plateaued. A lot of people are deciding themselves to go into lockdown. They're taking their own decisions in that respect. So, so they are, Michael. Mm. So two things here. Mm. I think when you have a vaccination programme rolled out that's close to 90, 94%, 95%, people very often are, in, are, are comfortable and in a position now to make those changes, to adjust their life, to trying to live with COVID, and they can read the figures for themselves. Government's decision then is how far do you go with the recommendations and with the restrictions. Coming into this, our aim was to minimise having to uh, intrude on people's lives, intrude on businesses, and try to keep as many as we possibly can functioning mm. as is. So that's, that's the intention. Mm. And based on the success of the vaccination programme, we've minimised the, 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 the restrictions over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Government, had to, government had to decide today, with NEFA's advice, do we need to go forward or, or not? And that's the decision that has to be made. It's, it's terrible, but it's a, a terrible necessity, isn't it? I mean, if you uh, were watching the news last night and saw Colette Nugent of the market bar and draw it in tears, you'll understand that there's a, a consequence for the decisions that we're making without being told not to go to the pub. We're not going to the pub uh, and businesses are suffering. But uh, on the other hand, the virus is rife. And it, there's an awful lot of people are going to spend Christmas in hospital. So, so two things, Michael. Look, this is horrific, uh, what the effect it's having on business. Uh, and certainly in the hospitality sector, in the play and leisure sector, in the entertainment sector, nighttime economy, it's, it's having devastating impacts on business. So to be absolutely clear on this, government will respond uh, to assist those businesses with support. That's, that's definite. The Thomas can confirm that yesterday. We have Martin has confirmed it. They're meeting some of the sectors today. And that will be announced in due course. So, so that's an absolute uh, guarantee and commitment. Yeah. We have always supported jobs and supportive businesses right through this, uh, and we will continue to do that. That's number one. But number two, why are we doing this? It is because we have a devastating virus that is right throughout our community mm. and can, can result in loss of life for a number of people. What's key from, for me is, while with the changes we made a couple of weeks ago, asking people to reduce their contacts, people making decisions themselves based on the figures and their understanding of two years into a virus, people have made changes to their lives, and that has helped uh, stabilise the numbers and the numbers in hospital uh, have, have kind of been in and around the 570 mm. on the 600 for a period of time now. and the ICU beds have not changed much in numbers since we last spoke Michael on this a few weeks ago that's a positive that means that we are beginning to bring the virus under mm. control mm. in some yeah. but, but there's the, the this there's this new variant yeah. no there's the uh, absolutely I um, don't think anybody would argue with anything you've said there Minister but there's the threat of this new variant uh, and whatever about the level of disease or how severe it will or how deadly it might be, it seems almost inevitable that it's going to be very transmissible and that we're going to see a huge increase in the number of cases as it starts to take hold. And with that increase, even if it is 
isn't more deadly, let's say, than the Delta, you will see an increase in illness, severe illness, critical care and deaths as a result. So all of these measures are absolutely necessary. It seems as though there's little doubt about that. If there are any questions, I think people will be asking, uh, are we doing enough? Uh, It seems as though we're going to be asked to restrict the number of households we mix with over Christmas. Three households will be allowed to visit fourth. These are the reports of what Neffet has advised, and I know you haven't seen the letter and I haven't, and I'm going on what it says in the papers. Uh, capacity on indoor hospitality will be limited. The size of groups and pubs and, rim- and restaurants will be limited. Uh, and uh, the COVID certs will be expanded as well uh, so that uh, you'll need them uh, for almost anything, quite possibly, except essential services. Uh, so two things there, Michael. I think we're, uh, just to the, to the start of your question in relation to new variants and the effect they will have, absolutely the evidence will show that they seem to be more transmissible. Their impact on our health is still uh, still to be, to, be, to be worked out by, by the scientists and by our health authorities, and that's been looked at and been monitored. And, of course, that will affect decisions into the future. But what's key here is that we roll out the third dose uh, as quick as you possibly can. But I think by this weekend, mm. we will be over a million people will have had that third dose which is about probably close to 20-25%. We know we can hit another, in terms of numbers, we can hit a target of 250,000 there, thereabouts every week. So by Christmas, we could be close to having nearly 2 million people with that uh, third dose stroke booster vaccine. Mm. To me, that's key. Oh, well, it'll be a great help. help. It'll be a great help. It's an immense help. And, mm. and we can see the effects that's having already mm. in all those... Oh, all of the cohorts that have had the third boost are seeing a drop in the numbers. Yeah, uh, but it, so we, will, we will continue our pace. It's not a golden right. bullet. Uh, there's two doctors in Israel who've been triple vaccinated uh, who've developed Omicron. Yeah, so two things, Michael. We, we know that right throughout the pandemic, there's no silver bullet, and sadly, there's no golden bullet either. But you do all you can in your power to, to vaccinate as many as you possibly can, and one, two, and three doses, and then to protect people along with advice and guidance, and that's what's been happening mm. over the last couple of weeks. I think people uh, are now have a real understanding of, of how to deal with this virus and have applied a lot of common sense. Mm. Government's role is to see how far do you need to go then with advice and guidance and, and, and rules around that. Mm. And that's a decision to make this week. But what's key is that, that we try to minimise loss of life, minimise the impact yeah. on our health service, and that's our approach. But we also have trying to give our businesses and create jobs and try to keep people, uh, you know, my people's mental health mm. and, and sociability as well. So we have to balance all of this. And there are the decisions we make this week. But again, Michael, to repeat, there are fundings and funding in place. There's money set aside to support these businesses which support mm. these jobs, and that's key for me. And we make those decisions quickly now over the next over the next period of time. Yeah, and they're, they're they're not easy decisions, uh, and <clears throat> you know it's very hard, uh, I'm sure, on everybody. And we've got to try and get through it best we can. And that's why, since uh, the beginning of uh, the pandemic, we've asked, been asked, uh, to be in it all together. Um, there's a small portion of people who are not in it together, of course, uh, who are acting recklessly. Uh, what do you make of uh, this advice? Uh, and I, I think uh, it'll be a surprise if the reports are not correct that COVID will advise extending the COVID certs uh, so that you uh, need them for everything bar essential services. That seems like common sense. Again, Michael, I think common sense is something that that's, uh, is not very common of us. Uh, and, and you would have to ask those people who are deciding who, not to have a vaccine. I totally accept there's a small percentage of people who, for medical reasons, might get advice from the doctor not to get a vaccine. I'm not reaching out to them. Uh, they take their advice from their doctor and their medical team. Mm. I'm reaching out to the other percentage of people who, for whatever reason, misinformation, fear, etc., to engage 
with their public health team to engage with their doctor and get some proper advice mm. around the vaccine. Because we can see the effects. Over 45% of, of the hospital cases are not vaccinated for whatever reason. Mm. But more importantly, those in ICU, over 50%. Mm. I think the COVID certs uh, are, are an ability uh, to facilitate the movement of people who are vaccinated. Mm. I know everyone can say it, it's unfair, but the virus is unfair and we have to protect as many as we possibly can. I think greater use of, of, of the COVID vaccine is something that really has to be considered mm. by, by Cabinet today. Uh, and, and I think the hospitality sector have really stepped up their approach to that as well and are really enforcing that. I think people yeah. themselves now are, are also self-enforcing, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, but uh, you'd wonder, uh, should it just be applied across the board? Because uh, there is a, a recklessness to these people. Not only are they putting themselves at risk of illness, severe illness, critical care and death, uh, which is clear, they're getting they're getting COVID more often, they're getting sicker more often, uh, but they're also acting recklessly. You find that the people who won't get a vaccine also won't follow the public health guidelines. They sneer at the idea of wearing masks. Uh, they are a threat to other people and they're passing it on to other people. And as a result, we're seeing breakthrough infections. Uh, you mentioned the hospital figures there uh, and indeed the ICU figures. Uh, maybe if you bear with me for 30 seconds, we'll hear what the head of the HSE, Paul Reid, had to say about those ICU figures yesterday. Those who are unvaccinated are highly disproportionately represented in our hospitals. If you just look at the current state position relation to that, 48% of the COVID patients in hospitals now aren't fully vaccinated. 50% of the people, COVID patients in ICU uh, now are un- have had no vaccination at all and 2% are partially vaccinated. And interestingly, in the age group of 19 to 14 years of age in hospital, COVID patients in hospital, 79% are not fully vaccinated. For the sake of their own health, it's clear, it's obvious, it's logical, they should get vaccinated. Uh, But if uh, they ignore that, uh, should they be rejected by society because they're putting the rest, rest of us at risk. We wouldn't let people walk up the streets. We wouldn't shop with people. We wouldn't work with people. We wouldn't socialise with people if they were walking around with handguns. So again, Michael, our health authorities, in this case, NEFIT, uh, have recommended that, uh, that we increase the rollout of the use of the COVID certs. That's something cabinet will, will decide on. Uh, I can see their benefits. I think we all can. Plus, it's probably fair uh, to, to, to people who have played their part, who have got the vaccine. Uh, and I totally accept that there are a number of people who can't, and we're not talking to them, and you're not no, either. No, no, no. It's no, the no, others no, who are choosing, no. for whatever reason, not to do this. Uh, based on many cases, what I can see is misinformation, fear. They're, they're, they're getting their information from other sources. Uh, and if anyone has, has a genuine fear, engage. Talk to your doctor. Get the advice. The really strong health advice is to get this vaccine to protect yourself, number one, but all those around you. And the COVID certs enable that, help that. I understand the application of COVID certs and monitoring of that can be a major hassle to businesses. I totally accept that. But I think every effort we can make here to protect ourselves is something that we, we will consider and we will do. Uh, and I want to thank all those businesses who mm-hmm. have played their part in monitoring the COVID cert and requesting, because it's not nice to ask your customers and your neighbours. I accept it's not nice to be checking COVID certs and checking all that. But again, to, mm. to, to, to say... No, to I wouldn't. Well, I, I just wouldn't have entertain it. I, I know it's not uh, nice, no. but I mean, they're not being nice. They're showing a complete yeah. no, no, Michael, disregard for people, complete disrespect to people yeah. by not wearing masks. It's ridiculous that it's allowed to continue. A lot of people were in touch with us yesterday because we gave a, a way of understanding this idea about how disproportionate 
disproportionate the disease is on those who are not vaccinated. And a lot of people said, God, I, I didn't really see it that way before. And I'll just repeat it again, Minister, if I can. But in this example, we're saying that the population is a thousand people. So if you can imagine a thousand people, maybe imagine a thousand people on a, a football park or in a football stadium, let's say. And you ask 50 of those to go on to one side of the field and the other 950 to go on to the other side of the field where they wouldn't fit. They'd be up in the stadium, probably out in the street and so on. There'd be so many of them compared to the 50 on one side of the field. So that's 95% on one side of the field, 5% on the other side of the field. 950 to 50. And let's say you'd 10 people in ICU and to get those 10 people, you looked at both sides of the field and you looked to where there was just 50 people and you took five people out. And then you looked to the other side where there's throngs of people, 950 people, and you took five out. That's your 10 people. And that's the disproportionate disproportionality of all of this. The 950 people represent the people who are vaccinated. The 50 people represent the amount of people who are not vaccinated. And you take five from both sides and they end up in ICU fighting for their life. Michael, that is a really, really good and useful way to explain this. What I've been trying, trying to is exactly that. I think what we've been trying to tell everybody a completely disproportionate and nearly 10 times greater than what it should be. And I think your analysis there and your, and your, your way to picture that for everybody is really useful and might help us get the message out. Thankfully, we've seen with all the messaging and the push on this in the last week or two, I think over 10,000 people engaged, um, I think in the last 10 days, for their first vaccine. So we are seeing some movement. We are getting through to some people, but we need to keep getting through to the rest as well. And mm. the work you're doing on that and many others is really helpful. 10,000 got their first vaccine. 10,000 got their second vaccine. 20,000 people came forward for vaccines uh, that mightn't have been the case otherwise. A, a very good week last week. Absolutely. And, and more importantly, on top of all that, we're close to a million are getting their third dose. Yes. And that, to me, is key. And we need to continue that because it's fair to say, Michael, we could have variants and different scenarios mm. rolling out in front of us for, for a period of time. We have to do all we can to be prepared for that. And even Neffa's advice this morning, the government will analyse that. Some of that is precautionary because we have seen the last three or four weeks uh, the changes due to people's efforts uh, and common sense here that we are being able to reduce the pressure on the health service. It's under immense pressure. Uh, and that's, you know, but, but we are preparing for what might come ahead of us as well and trying to be ready. We have to judge as a government the, the times to do that. And that's something that we'll continue to work with effort on um, over, the, over the period of time ahead of us. OK, Minister, we leave there. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Damien English is a Fine Gael TD for Me the West. He's also the Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, yesterday, Alan Brecknell of uh, the Pat Finucane Centre and uh, Margaret Irwin of uh, the Justice uh, for the Forgotten Group appeared before the Oireachtas Committee uh, for the implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, committee members heard about efforts to deal with legacy issues from uh, the Troubles as well as uh, the British government's intention to give an amnesty to anyone guilty of crimes committed during the Troubles to stop all investigations and inquests from happening and to end courts hearing civil actions. Probably the most outrageous proposal is that which would see a basic amnesty for all those involved in the violent conflict. The British government can call it what they like but in most fair-minded people's eyes, it's an amnesty. And as you know, these proposals are being opposed across the board by everyone in Northern Ireland. It should be remembered that these proposals have their origins in an ill-conceived Conservative manifesto promise to stop the so-called witch hunt against veterans who served in Northern Ireland. 
There is no evidence to support the claim that there was a witch hunt against the vets. On the contrary, it should be remembered that only four soldiers were ever convicted of murder. They were all released as a result of a Queen's pardon and returned to serve within their regiments. And it might sound remarkable, but apparently the claim is that the vast majority of Troubles-related deaths caused by British security forces were lawful. For clarification purposes, the Patronoukin Centre asked the Northern Ireland office, what information does the NIO hold, including the titles of documents and papers, that supports the claim that the vast majority of troubles-related deaths at the hands of the security forces were lawful. The NIO's reply stated, I open quotes here, I can confirm that the Northern Ireland office does not hold any records that relate to the statement to which you refer. The statement in command paper 498, published on the 14th of July, is based on publicly available information that shows that of the estimated 10% of deaths caused by the security forces during the Troubles, a very small number have been found to be unlawful. Again, it should be remembered that only a small number of cases came before the courts, and therefore only a small number could have been found to be lawful. That's Alan Bracknell. He was speaking at uh, that Oireachtas Committee yesterday, as was Margaret Irwin of uh, the Justice for the Forgotten Group. And Margaret is uh, the coordinator of the group and on the line with us. A very good morning to you, Margaret, and uh, thank morning, you indeed uh, for joining thank us. Thank you for having uh, me on. Oh, yeah. you're, very, you're very welcome, as always. Uh, I'm sure uh, you've seen the reports uh, that Brandon Lewis is saying it may take a bit more time than was planned to introduce uh, this amnesty. He's already missed a, a deadline as such uh, that uh, was uh, due to bring uh, this legislation forward in the autumn. That's right, yes. <clears throat> I mean, it seemed to us that he was going to introduce this or try at least to introduce this legislation in October and um, we thought um, we were hearing last week that it was imminent and even this week that it was imminent and then yesterday he seemed to draw back I mean, can they implement something that everybody on this island is against? All parties, uh, North and South, the Irish government, everybody is totally against it. So maybe they are having second thoughts about it. One would hope so. Right. Uh, the Conservative Party probably not, or indeed uh, representatives of uh, the British forces. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure the British forces will not be pleased and many in the Conservative Party will not be pleased either. But uh, I think anybody who respects the rule of law uh, will will be uh, relieved about this. But of course, we're not out of the woods yet. He may yet very well introduce it in the new year. We, we can't be sure that he won't at this point. OK. Uh, if he did, what would it mean uh, to the ongoing investigation uh, that John Boucher is conducting uh, on your behalf and others? Uh, from your perspective in Justice for the Forgotten, we're talking about the Dublin Monaghan bombings, uh, the bombings in Dundalk at Case Tavern, uh, Seamus Ludlow, the Miami, Miami Show Band and others. That's right, and Castle Blaney mm. and um, <clears throat> John Francis Green, they are all, um, they are all um, supported by ourselves. Um, well, the implications, we don't actually know. Uh, would, it, would he close it down? Would, the, would that be closed down? Because it's, uh, it's up and running now for a couple of years. And 
John Belcher is making very good progress. He has an excellent team. He has uh, met with almost all of the families we support at this stage, as has his team. They've taken detailed uh, statements of the impact on their lives of uh, losing their loved ones or the survivors, uh, how their injuries affected them. So all of that work is being done and has been done over the last year in particular. And uh, he's making very good progress despite uh, COVID, which of Mm. course has delayed things considerably, but nevertheless, he's making very good progress. So it would be uh, devastating if that were suddenly to be shut down. So we simply don't know uh, what would happen. Of course, we have a civil case uh, in the High Court in Belfast in relation to Dublin Monaghan, but that would be shut down perhaps. Uh, Also, the police ombudsman's uh, inquiry into the Glenann series. We we simply don't know uh, how it would affect things. I mean, if everything was to be shut down, it would be disastrous. Mm. And, And families looking for justice uh, for their lost That's loved what ones. I mean, for yeah. families. Mm. It would be devastating, yes. Yeah, but probably a uh, little surprise that they're more than happy to cooperate if it leads to justice. Uh, am I right in thinking that there hasn't been the same level of cooperation from the British? In relation to? With uh, John Boucher. Oh, there has been. Uh, oh, yes, they're fully cooperating with them. The British are fully cooperating uh, with John Boucher, from what we hear. Um, the PSNI have been um, cooperating, continue to cooperate, and also the entities in Britain like the MOD and MI5 and so on are all cooperating fully with them. Okay, uh, and he's been getting the documentation and the in- type of information uh, that he's been looking for because uh, previously a lot of that I- information has been denied. That's right. Yes, absolutely. Of course, we've had the three Doyle motions in uh, 2008, 2011 and 2016, and they were just completely ignored by the British government. Uh, but uh, now there seems this, uh, this seems to be uh, very successful so far. Of course, we, don't, we won't know until uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, so we won't know until we get the report, which hopefully we will get, uh, at the completion of uh, of the of Mr. Boucher's review, so mm. you know we can't, is, we don't know yet. Is, is there a, an expected uh, time frame uh, as to when he might report? Well, we hope within the next two years, certainly. Yeah, right. uh, and uh, the problem the problem at the moment, as you probably gather from our contribution yesterday, is that uh, the Gardaí are not cooperating because uh, because of a hitch. Uh, because this is a review and not a criminal investigation. And they feel prevented from cooperating? Well, they feel that the legislation may not be adequate or sufficient for them to make the files available at the moment. But uh, we had a meeting with senior officials in the Department of Justice and Department of Foreign Affairs last Monday, and uh, we received a commitment from them that... uh, they were about to seek the advice of the Attorney General about uh, whether they could make the um, material available under current legislation. Mm. And we also got a commitment that if the current legislation is not adequate, that they will seek to have legis- new legislation to cover that enacted in the Oireachta. So um, that is um, the, the committee now is writing 
to the Minister for Justice um, about that to ensure that this is done very speedily. Mm. Uh, and the balance now is the hope that uh, Mr. Boucher will be able to investigate this thoroughly and come to conclusions uh, that will deliver justice uh, to the families on one hand uh, and on the other hand uh, whether it'll all be shut down and pointless because of uh, the position that the British take. That's right, yes, yes. And and of course, uh, we're still in a limbo about that until we, we know what's happening. But uh, I think everything is proceeding as it was. I mean, inquests are proceeding at a great rate, I think, in the north. Um, the, the number of inquests that were promised, uh, legacy inquests, that is, so that... Uh, you know that there is no, there's no let up at the moment. Um, everything is proceeding as normal and will do until such time as uh, legislation is enacted in Westminster. Okay, Margaret, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining Thank us. You Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much. That's Margaret Irwin, coordinator with the Justice for the Forgotten Group. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Deirdre and Kells wants to lock up people who haven't been vaccinated. Uh, thanks uh, for sharing his, uh, that with us. Uh, Deirdre, Will says, I know people who are born-again Christians who are preaching that people shouldn't get vaccinated on Sundays, that it's God will. What a load of crap. Will says he's furious. Thanks uh, for that. Are they Jehovah's Witness or born-again Christians? I'm surprised uh, to think that they'd be born-again Christians. Uh, but thanks, uh, for that will uh, I'm just asking uh, somebody else says what about the uh, people uh, that want the vaccine I had one Janssen jab on the 1st of June I can't wait for another why is it taking so long uh, Jim and Cooley says Michael can you clarify what Paul Reid means when he says not fully vaccinated uh, our last call gives us uh, a clue Jim uh, there's four vaccines in the country the Janssen one was a one jab vaccine and uh, the others you needed two uh, and quite often people didn't go back for the second jab uh, with the Pfizer for example I think there was a six week break you got your jab six weeks later you went back for the second one people didn't go back for the second one and they're considered not to be fully vaccinated hope that makes sense to you uh, another text uh, from someone who says there's a massive queue for the third dose at the first Airways and Dundalk. Good to see. Thank you for telling us. Matthew Indrahada on the phone saying, why didn't they introduce these measures a few weeks ago and let us have our, our Christmas with our families? If they restrict the number of households being allowed to mix, not all families will be able to get together on Christmas Day. Gareth uh, in touch with us, a lot of people in touch with us actually through Facebook. He says uh, there's talk that they're recommending closing the hospitality sector at uh, an earlier time. Do they not think that the people in, this hosp- in, in hospitality have suffered enough or ready and over the last two years Lisa again on Facebook book says what about a cap on how many people can be in a shop the shops are thronged and they're only going to get busier coming into the Christmas period thanks for that Lisa you're not the only one who's uh, thinking that way uh, because uh, we'd a call from Tia actually she was in touch uh, through Facebook as well I think and she says uh, the further restrictions on hospitality it's madness she says what about the shopping centres they're thronged with people every day more than you'd see in a pub or a restaurant yet no cert is required 
I think the belief is at least that you behave a bit differently when you don't have a few drinks in you and you're not on top of each other hugging people and telling them that you love them and all that sort of thing to you. I think that's the, the, the logic behind it, if that makes sense to you or not. Uh, Don says, extending the use of COVID certs is stupid. Just because you have a piece of paper, it doesn't mean that you can't be carrying COVID to spread it to other people. If people had antigen tests before going out, there'd be no need for COVID certs. Thank you, Don. Thank you to everybody who has been in touch with us today and we'll have plenty more calls and comments later in the programme if you do want to get in touch with us. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, if your doctor gives you the bad news that you have a cancer diagnosis, the good news is that it may not be terminal or life-limiting, for that matter, because survival figures have improved greatly. The problem here is that you may not have been diagnosed yet, and the Irish Cancer Society is very worried about this, as you probably know. Let's speak to its Chief Executive Officer, Avril Power. Very good morning to you, Avril, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. You reckon that as many as one in eight cancers, or about 14% of cancers, have not been diagnosed as a result of the pandemic. Um, Good morning, Michael. Yes, so these are 2020 um, figures. So unfortunately, unlike COVID, we don't get real-time data on cancer diagnoses and treatments. So we're we're always behind. Um, And these estimates that were published yesterday found that up to 3,500 cancers um, may have gone undiagnosed during 2020 alone. Um, And we're very worried about that. Um, We're already hearing from doctors that patients are now turning up um, in hospitals, patients who should have been seen in 2020 are, are coming into hospitals this year with cancers that are much further on and patients that are sicker and harder to treat as a result. And we're also worried that in some of that 3,500, maybe people who still don't know that they've got cancer. Yeah. Um, and with cancer, as you know, Michael, timing is everything. It's so important that it's caught early so that we can benefit from the positive part that you said there, which is when it's caught earlier, there are great treatments now and the prognosis is generally very good. But the longer it's left, the more difficult treatment gets. Mm. Uh, that may leave people worried if uh, they've been unwell for uh, some time and waiting on a, a scope or something like that. Yeah, so we would urge people that if they've any concerns, um, if they've any cancer symptoms and they haven't talked to a doctor at all yet, mm. to talk to their GP, to call one of our cancer nurses for free. We have a free phone number, one eight hundred two hundred seven hundred. We know that people, unfortunately, are having difficulties accessing GPs also at the moment. So call our nurse. We're, we're available. We're free. And we can help you figure out if, if you have something that needs to be urgently investigated. In relation to people, you know, who do actually need investigation, the urgent services are still operating. So if a GP feels that somebody needs to be seen urgently, they can go through rapid access clinics for the main cancers and and get on an urgent list um, for other diagnostic tests. But we are still seeing delays in those tests. And we're particularly worried as well that so-called non-urgent procedures, that the delays with those will cause problems because... You know, today's treatable cancer that isn't life-threatening right now can mm. become problematic over the course of a few months if things keep getting delayed. And right now we're seeing a lot of disruption to surgeries in particular because of the problems and um, the crisis in the hospitals with staffing and lack of ICU beds. Right. And people will uh, invariably ignore symptoms. 
uh, and hope that they'll go away uh, and delay going to the doctor. And when people go to the doctor, I think uh, a lot of it depends on what they tell the doctor if they give the full picture of the symptoms that they're experiencing. Yeah, and you know, sometimes people aren't sure, right? Because mm. you're you're not sure if um, if um, if a lump is something that to be worried about. You know, breast lumps in particular, women women can find up breast change breast change all the time. You know, particularly if, if you're if you're breastfeeding, you've had a baby at different stages in your life as well. You can have breast changes, but we would always say just get it checked to be sure. Um, and if you have any other potential cancer symptoms like unexplained weight loss, the pain that doesn't go away, um, changing your bowel or, or bladder wow. habits, unexplained bleeding. It, they're always better to get a check. So the chances are that it won't be cancer. Hmm. But if it is, the earlier that you can get on a waiting list to get seen, the better. Because unfortunately, with some cancers, the prognosis at, at stage one, if it's caught early, is 90%. But by stage four, it could be 10 to 20%. And that's, yeah. you know, that's a huge difference. And you don't want to panic people either. I, I mean, uh, blood in the stool is uh, quite often a, a sign of cancer, but it's quite often not the case. Uh, and people yeah. are terrified when they see it. Yeah, and, look, and most, I think, unfortunately, with a lot of cancer symptoms, you know, a lot of them, are, are symptoms of other things um, and that are not problematic. And as I said, look, the vast majority of cases, if you've something you're worried about, it, it most likely won't be cancer. But I think it's for the chance that it might be that you're better off getting it checked and, and, and getting your tests and starting treatment straight away. So we don't want to overly worry people, but at the same time, we are concerned that because people are dealing with so many other pressures in their lives at the minute, they're worried about COVID, they're balancing, you know, working from home while managing kids, while having all the other disruptions in their lives, that they're putting off things that really do need to be checked. Um, mm. And as I said, look, if you're not sure, just call one of our nurses. It will take five minutes of your time. It's a free service, and we'd be delighted to help you decide if you need to go and get it properly investigated. Okay, maybe we'll check that number with you. one 800 is it? That's it, yeah. Okay, one 800 700 It's a, an amazing service uh, that uh, the nurses give, uh, and uh, there's always somebody there with a great advice for people who have concerns. Uh, 1-800-200-700. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. April Powers, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Cancer Society. Uh, let me give you some more of the comments uh, coming to us uh, this morning because uh, quite a, a lot of people have been in touch with us today and thank you to everybody who has taken the time to call. Uh, some text messages, uh, first of all, uh, Claire in touch uh, who says uh, COVID is a joke, the HSE, NEFIT, the government, uh, they don't want people to die of COVID, but you can die because you can't get seen for cancer. It's a joke. How is this right? Uh, but it's one of the problems with COVID that uh, treatment and uh, tests uh, and scopes and all of that kind of thing are being delayed and it's for us all to think about. And it's not just cancer, of course. Uh, there's all kinds of problems, as we'll hear later in the programme too. Uh, somebody else uh, in touch with us saying they did a, a lot of antigen tests, 13 tests uh, from the 25th of November up until last Sunday, uh, and they were all positive. I think uh, <laughs> I'd be getting some advice if I were you. PJ says he's getting his booster on Sunday. Good for you, PJ. He says, I'm going to be restricting my movements again. 
uh, despite getting his booster on Sunday. But he, he says there's a rugby match scheduled for the RDS tomorrow. Where's the sense in that? Uh, it just plays into the hands of the anti-vaxxers. Thanks uh, indeed, uh, PJ. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing uh, this morning, people who are living in uh, this country illegally or undocumented are to get the opportunity to apply to a scheme which will allow them to live in this country legally. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, joins us. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Can you tell us what's envisaged here? Thanks, Michael. Good morning. Um, If I could just maybe ask people to have a think about something um, because this is this is really this scheme. It, it's the right thing to do for so many reasons. There are thousands of people currently living in this country. They're living in our communities. Their children are in our schools. They're working. Many of them are paying taxes. They are contributing in our football clubs, in our community organisations, but they're not documented, um, which means they don't have a, a legal permission to remain. And for so many people, it means that they're living in the shadows, and I, I don't like using that phrase, but they are essentially living in the shadows. Some of them won't come forward if they're victims of crime for fear of what might happen. Many of them throughout the pandemic, they, they haven't even come forward to get vaccinated or tested because of the fear of what might happen. So this scheme will regularise them. Essentially, it will give them permission to stay here legally, um, because many of them are, are here illegally. Um, it will allow them to access the labour market properly, but it will also mean that they can continue on a path to potentially becoming citizens of this country. Um, so it's it's a really important mm. scheme, I think. So you're talking, you're talking about people uh, who don't have a, a status as such in this country. They're here uh, illegally, undocumented illegal immigrants, whichever phrase you prefer to use uh, at the moment, or they're seeking asylum, as the case may be. Yes, so there, there are a number of people who are included in this scheme mm. and we probably all know somebody who's in a similar situation, be it in America or in other parts mm. of the world. Mm. If they're here for four years or longer, they can apply for this scheme in an undocumented state. If they have children, that can then be reduced to three years. Um, if you have somebody with a deportation order, so they may have had uh, permission, they may have fallen out of permission, they may then have been given a deportation order, so they might be here 10 years but nothing has happened and they're living, as I said, in this limbo. They can apply for the scheme. You also have people who are in the international protection system. That's people seeking asylum. They can also apply for this scheme. So what I really tried to do is obviously take on board this is an undocumented scheme, but I've tried to make it as broad as possible to try and make sure that because this is a once-in-a-lifetime scheme, as many people as possible can come under it. I really think this is the right thing to do. As I said, these people are here living here now that part of our society we, we possibly don't even know who they are because they haven't told people their status um, but as of January of next year we're going to be asking people to come forward and obviously my department will be working through the applications to try and process them and, and approve them as quickly as possible Okay, I take it though you have an informed guess as to about how many people will be eligible whether they come forward or not So what we estimate at the moment, and this is based on figures from the Migrant Rights Centre and other organisations, is you potentially have around 17,000 adults. That figure increases then to over 20,000 when you include children. Now, it may be more, it may be less, but that is the figure we have. Of course, undocumented means that we we just don't have a, a clear or a full picture. But again, these are people here already, so we're not going to have people arriving from outside of the country looking to claim um, uh, I suppose access to this scheme they'll have to be able to show 
that they're living here, that they've been here for the periods of time that I've mentioned. We're also going to try and make it, uh, I suppose, easy for these people um, in terms of the type of documentation that they'll have to provide. Um, because if you are undocumented, you don't necessarily have all of the paperwork that I would have or that you would have, Michael, or mm. others would have. So we're taking into account all of the various different types of scenarios that people might find themselves in. All right. And some will have a lot of documentation, as you say. A lot of people are working here. They'll have PPS numbers and so on. Others may not have any such documentation. But you will be looking for evidence that people have been resident here. It won't be open to the charge that you're opening up the floodgates, the type of thing that people do be worried about. Absolutely not. And I mean, many people are already living, you know, they're they're renting accommodation, they have their own homes, they may have utility bills. And this is the unusual thing. Many people are actually paying taxes. Mm. So while they're not here legally, they will have this type of documentation. Um, You know, they may have a savings account in the credit union, they may have something like that. So it's just to be able to show that you're here for the four years, if you have children, okay. obviously that, that's three years. Where you're in the international protection system, that's slightly different because you have people who arrive with absolutely no documentation. They're in direct provision. And as you know and others know, mm. we've given a commitment from government to abolish direct provision. So this is uh, part of the overall recommendation mm. to do that and, and will help us in that. Yeah. And it, it really is such a, a small amount of people and it really is regularising what is already their situation. It's not going to be any great draw on the state and I think that there's no doubt about that. Uh, but why now, Minister? Uh, because I think it's equally true to say that we've been almost hypocritical as a country in relation to undocumented people living in this country. We've had contrasting set of values where we've gone to America as politicians, as governments of all parties and so forth to America and ask for some compassion and consideration for the Irish who are living illegally there. We hear of people in America, Irish citizens who can't come home for their parents' funerals and so on. We think it's a dreadful situation and they should do something about it there. But when it comes to the situation here, there's always been great resistance to it. So why now? Why this change? Well, for exactly the reasons that you've outlined, Michael, um, I really, as Minister for Justice, wanted to make sure that those scenarios that you've outlined, that people living here, that they can go home to funerals, that they can go home and see their families. I met one gentleman who hadn't seen his family in over 10 years. And that's absolutely heartbreaking to think that people were living here, that they, you know, they like being here, they've made it their home, yet they couldn't travel home. And that's exactly why we're doing this. We want to make sure that what we're asking of other countries, what we're asking of other governments to do for our citizens that we're going to do it for people who are living here. So I appreciate some people who have been here for a long time, have been asking this for a long time, um, but we are doing it. It will open in January, I can assure people of that. It will be a six-month period, so it will be a closed time. Um, But I think because we gave this commitment in the programme for government, which was over 18 months ago, there won't be anybody that's probably unaware that this is coming down the line. They'll have had time to, to make sure that if they need documentation, if they need the small fee that's mm. available or that will be required for the application, that they have that, that all of the, the their ducks are in a row essentially and that they will be able to apply within the six-month time frame. So I, I appreciate mm. we've had other smaller schemes before. We've had schemes to regularise students where they've been here on visas and it's, you know, they've lapsed for whatever reason. But this is a much, much bigger scheme. Anything that we've done before has been very targeted. It has dealt with specific groups of maybe a few thousand. This is potentially 20,000 people 
Um, so I'm really trying to, to cast the net as wide mm. as possible to, to, to make sure as many people come in under this as possible um, because, as I said, it, it, I believe it's the right thing to do. And look, yeah. possibly we should have done it before now. We haven't been yeah. doing it now, and I think that's... Well, it, it, it's never too late to do the right thing. And some of uh, the individual stories are, are very hard. People have been living in very, very hard circumstances, uh, and I'm sure for the most part, didn't want to live under those circumstances in the same way that the Irish would prefer to get a, a green card or, or whoever. Uh, people understand uh, getting uh, some sort of documentation which uh, makes you legally resident I- I- in a country. Uh, but it, it's not been the case, uh, and now it will be, which is great. But when you hear some of these stories or see some of these stories, uh, they really are very hard to contend with and to balance it in your own mind. Uh, I spent some time in hospital. Thankfully, it's about 10 years ago but I remember when I was in hospital I was just thinking about it this morning when I saw the announcement uh, that you were going to regularise these people I was thinking of a a man that uh, was on the same ward as me for uh, a couple of weeks he was a a Chinese man and he he didn't have a a word of English and he'd been living in this country for a long time Uh, they had to get an interpreter and very slowly over a number of days uh, somebody came in to see him I think it was his wife and a very young child Uh, they were very afraid to come into the hospital it turned out that the man had a terminal diagnosis and was going to uh, die imminently. Uh, And there was this situation where the family were afraid to come into the hospital in case they were going to be arrested uh, and to make contact with home and so on uh, was next to impossible for them. Whether it was possible or should have been possible, they felt so afraid that they didn't want to do anything like that. And that's a, a dreadful... It's kind of like a, an incarceration, putting somebody into prison uh, when you're in such a real situation like that. Uh, you've given a, a number of personal examples of people's stories in your press release, Minister. Uh, and I think uh, the three people or the three situations that you speak about, uh, they all say at the end of them that they individuals uh, that we're talking about have never come into contact with uh, the Gardaí or uh, to the attention of uh, the Gardaí. Is that a prerequisite for this scheme? If people are to qualify, uh, is it that they have to have been on the right side of the law as such? So what we will do here is, um, I think, really exercise good judgment. Um, I have additional uh, team members who are going to be dealing with the scheme specifically. So if somebody, of course, is a threat, if somebody has clearly shown that they've been uh, involved and, and have come into contact with the Gardaí on a number of times, that they will be potentially a threat to, to people here or to this country, they're not going to be included in the scheme. But if you have some sort of a misdemeanor, if you have for whatever, you know, a parking fine, if you have had some sort of a small altercation with the police, um, you know, we're going to try and look favourably where, where it's a small incident. But Similarly, if somebody has come into contact with the police because they've received a deportation order, so it's not that they've actually committed the type of crime that we think of, but it's because they're undocumented and they shouldn't be here. The people who are with deportation orders are going to be allowed to come in under the scheme as well. So what I don't want is people listening to this thinking, I can't come forward because I might be deported. I can't come forward um, because I came into contact with the police over a small issue four years ago, or 10 years ago, we really are trying to look 
at this from a human rights based approach and to include as many people as possible. And, uh, I, I take and that's it that you're. outlined as, as happened so many people, they don't come forward if they're mm. victims of crime, they don't mm. go to the guards, they're fearful of what will happen there. We can't have people living in that scenario or that situation that you've mentioned in the hospital. It's mm. not right. Mm. It's not okay to allow people to be to be living like that. And I take it, Minister, you're speaking to us today to reach out to those people uh, and uh, you're concerned that they may be suspicious of the scheme. Uh, are, are, are you uh, planning on other ways of making contact with people and encouraging them to come forward? Are you concerned as well about the cost because there will be a cost to apply to the scheme? Uh, and uh, as part of the same question, uh, if we can conclude our conversation, can I also uh, ask you about this scheme? If people are successful, if their application uh, is looked on uh, successfully, uh, what does that mean for them? Can they become Irish citizens? Are they entitled to welfare, housing and all, all all of the other benefits uh, that go with being an Irish citizen? So to the first question, I'll be officially launching the scheme today. Um, so we'll be hopefully trying to get that out to as many people as possible. But what I've done over the last 18 months is ex- engage extensively with a lot of the migrant uh, rights organisations. So obviously they are in constant communication. They're a voluntary sector. So people are more likely to come to them than government agencies. A lot of people are coming from countries where they potentially don't trust the state, they don't trust the state agencies or their own police. So we're engaging with those organisations and associations. They will then in turn reach out to those communities and we'll try and get to as many people as possible. We're conscious, obviously, of the cost and that many people, if they are working, it's in low-paid jobs, so they won't necessarily have a lot of money for fees, but there is going to be, uh, I suppose, a nominal fee for families and then a lower fee for individuals. So it's 550 euro for an individual or 700 euro for a family of of potentially any number of people. So while I do appreciate there is a cost there, we made this clear at the beginning of this government that the scheme was going to be introduced. I hope that that time has allowed people to put some money aside to be able to apply for this. Um, So, you know, we're we're going to try and reach out to as many people as possible. Um, When they are successful, and I hope many of them will be, they'll receive a stamp for that essentially gives them permission to stay, to have full access to the labour market. It will then become part of the time that they can apply to become citizens of this country. Um, and as you said, it will allow them access to the uh, social welfare or other services, but they will have to apply uh, and fit under the same criteria as you, me or anybody else. So they won't be given any special treatment in that regard. They'll still have to fit the criteria, whether it's seeking job seekers or, or any other type of support. Fantastic. Minister, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Michael. That's the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. Now, Eddie has been in touch with us, and uh, thanks uh, for your call to the show, Eddie. He's wondering if uh, we could talk about people who are not getting treated uh, because of the pressure on the health service. Uh, We'll be doing that actually just in a a minute, Eddie, and it's not just because of COVID that people are not being treated, as we'll hear from consultants, as I say, in a moment or two. Some texts into us uh, about uh, the scheme uh, for making the undocumented legal in this country. Uh, Somebody saying um, that there are so many foreigners begging on the streets 
uh, who say, actually, there were a few calls in from people who weren't too happy about this, and we're just going to change the context of it. Uh, sure, uh, you don't mind, because the point is the same. Uh, we're going to uh, imagine that the comments are about Irish people in uh, America. So uh, ask Helen McEntee why there are so many Irish people begging on the streets of New York who say they're homeless. Uh, another text uh, from somebody who says, how are there Irish kids in school or how do the Irish have bank accounts if they're illegal in America? Only in America do they look after others before they look after their own uh, and they're looking after the Irish. You wouldn't see many uh, illegals living on uh, the streets of Ireland uh, that Michael Collins and his brave men uh, would have hoped for. They must be turning in their graves. Oh God, I don't know. Um, kind of lost the Irish in America thing there with that. Uh, but uh, there's very little uh, understanding of the situation that people are in. That's why I'm trying to ask you to think about the Irish in America rather than uh, the prejudices uh, that uh, you may have uh, against foreign nationals in this country. Uh, James said, and they start paying taxes and PRSI? Yeah, they do. The Irish pay taxes and PRSI in America when they're illegal. Uh, it's something that's uh, a common trait of uh, illegal immigrants or undocumented people, whichever uh, way you want to describe people who are not illegal, who don't have a legal status in a country. It's a common thing uh, across the world, James, uh, and uh, that includes in this country. But the wonderful news is uh, that the government is going to regularise their situation. They're going to be able to come out of the shadows, as the minister said, hold their head up high uh, and work and live in this country and become Irish citizens once and for all. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're hoping to get an appointment to see a hospital consultant in orthopaedics, dermatology, gynaecology or rheumatology in Cavan, Drogheda, Dundalk or Navan, you may be waiting for some time. Six years ago, the waiting list for the four specialities added up to a total of more than 10,500. Six years on, uh, that's risen to over 15,000, nearly 16,000, 15,868 people on waiting lists for the four specialities. And worse still, uh, perhaps, uh, or particularly unlucky, uh, you are, uh, if you're waiting uh, to see one of uh, those consultants, is that the waiting lists for those four specialities are probably higher than every other speciality that exists locally. Uh, indeed, they account for half of all of those who are waiting to be assessed by a hospital consultant in the region. This is according to the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Its General Secretary is Martin Farley, who's on the line. Good morning to you, Martin, and thank you indeed Good. for joining Good morning, us. Good morning, Michael. Uh, people will be forgiven for thinking that that's uh, as a result of COVID, but uh, by all accounts, it's not just as a result of COVID. No, it's not. And it's really down to the fact that over the years uh, we haven't appointed enough consultants and we haven't actually put in place in the North uh, East sufficient uh, public hospital capacity. And the consultants in the specialties which you refer to, orthopedics, dermatology, gynecology and rheumatology, are doing their absolute best with what's available to them. And they're extremely disappointed that the waiting lists are growing along the lines you've just uh, commented on, mm. which is based obviously on our own analysis. And so in percentage it, terms, that's 49% over the course of the six years with the four specialities combined. It is. And, mm. you know, it's, it's a nationwide problem, but it's a particular problem in an area like the Northeast. And in fact, for some of those specialties, the waiting lists are some of the highest in the country. And uh, we feel we have to keep 
highlighting this problem because, in fact, the plans we have seen for expanding capacity and the failure to fill vacant consultants' posts, which are running at about one in four consultant posts in the mm-hmm. region, uh, permanent posts are not filled, they're either vacant or they're filled on a temporary basis. So we're pressing the government to do everything that's necessary to address this, and we've been doing this for years. Uh, I think what COVID has done, it has just unmasked the serious problem that was there for years. And in fact, COVID has now put us in a new situation that you need physical distancing between beds and in hospitals, and you need more space, and it takes a bit more time to treat patients than previously because of the delays. And how long we've been living with COVID, we don't know. Either way, we need to expand our capacity because what has been happening even prior to this wasn't acceptable with waiting lists and patients on trolleys. Okay, I I take there's a number of factors that feed into it, COVID being one, uh, and uh, then the increase in population being another. uh, But there is this staff shortage as you say and you can't see a doctor if there isn't a doctor there to see you uh, one in four uh, posts not filled uh, but they've been approved have they not why have they not been filled they've been approved so they're approved as permanent posts uh, a lot of they're, they've all been advertised as permanent posts and uh, there's there's a failure to actually attract uh, popular highly trained specialists that are internationally mobile into these posts there are government policy reasons for it, in fact, uh, because in 2012, the government of the day, uh, led by Minister James Riley, and from a health perspective, decided to unilaterally cut the salary payables to new consultants appointed from October 2012. And since then, we've seen a growing number of public hospital consultant posts that can't be filled. That's not good for patients. That's not good for waiting lists. That's not good for people working in hospitals because it creates an even more stressed, overstretched situation. So it's not in anybody's interest. And in fact, it's not even cost saving. It's actually uh, flawed from an economic point of view. Aside from that, and more importantly still, patients are left waiting. There's risk of cancer uh, in some of those patients we talked about. Mm. There's also patients being left in pain and suffering uh, this orthopedic or rheumatology, for example. So we are extremely concerned. This makes no sense on any basis. It doesn't happen in any other developed economy. Yeah, people always uh, get animated uh, when you talk about consultants' pay and uh, quite often uh, annoyed uh, at the idea that uh, it's a contentious issue from your point of view because they feel that you're very well paid. But it, it is the point that uh, the pay that is on offer elsewhere is far higher and consultants are going where it pays more. Yeah, it always has been higher elsewhere. And yes, some trained specialists who are eligible for consultant posts abroad have gone abroad, but they've also come back. And what has happened very notably since 2012, they've stopped coming back. And we have maintained good contact with those specialists who are highly trained and could come back. Some are working in consultant posts abroad, and it tells they would come back, but they won't come back in a situation of blatant discrimination a 30% salary cut for the rest of your career compared with your colleagues doesn't enable you to recruit in any walk of life. So that's the problem. And that's what we said to the government. I said to them, repeat to repeated ministers, I would conclude, having talked to people, it would be like flicking a light switch. If you risk the discrimination and treated people fairly, uh, then people will come back. I can understand it. If you were trying to, if I was trying to employ somebody down the road from you, 
and I was discriminating against new employees and you weren't, well, they'll go to you. And so that's, that's what's happening. They're going to mm-hmm. Australia, they go to North America, and they actually, not only in addition to not being discriminated against, they're actually enabled to treat their patients in time. They're given the facilities so they don't have long waiting lists, and that makes the job much more uh, uh, satisfying for them and their patients. Okay. Feeding um, feeding it together. Can uh, you translate this into waiting times? Uh, if uh, there's 15,868 people on a waiting list uh, for one of uh, these specialities, what if somebody uh, is put on a, a waiting list today, let's say, and becomes 15,869th person, how long will the, uh, it take before they're seen? Well, I don't have the exact times in front of me, but I know from looking at waiting lists uh, for the Northeast and for elsewhere that a significant percentage of the people on waiting lists for those specialties are waiting longer than a year. Uh, I would like to hazard a guess, but I haven't pulled out the figures and looked at them mm. exactly because I, I don't want to do anybody injustice. But I know it's a significant percentage. And when I say that, I'm talking about probably something of the order of a third, generally speaking, could be waiting a longer than a year, 20, 30% or whatever. So that's a long time. And it's too long. Uh, it's not recommended from... Uh, good medical practice point of view is it's not good for patients. They're either left worrying, harder in pain, harder at risk. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier on, the risk can be great for some of the patients. Yeah, and everything has been done to try and triage the patients to to make sure you you, you prioritise the higher risk ones. But triage is a tool you use to try and identify based on what's in front of you without seeing the patient. So it's not a perfect uh, way of making sure you, you you find all those at risk. Okay. It's dependent on the recommendations from the GPs and the assessments prior to giving the outpatient appointment. Everything has been done, but we all know it's not perfect. So that's our concern. Okay, so the solution, am I right uh, in asking, uh, is the solution uh, in policy, uh, in uh, government decisions in the ongoing talks on the consultant contract uh, rather than uh, in HSE's ability to recruit. I mean, the positions are there, they're approved. I'm sure the HSE would be happy uh, to recruit if they could, but they can't attract the people. And is that down to uh, what is on the table, what's being offered to people? It's down to very simply um, reverse end the discrimination that was introduced in 2012 before you do untold damage and undermine our public hospital system to such an extent that it become irreversible. Because we don't fill these posts soon. Um, working in a public hospital is becoming harder and harder and more difficult for all staff, including consultants and doctors. So it's, it's doing damage on several fronts. So it's a simple decision to reverse. In fact, the minister has made unambiguous commitments, and they are his words, not mine, uh, at our annual conference in October last year and again this year to do so. So we're extremely disappointed that the government of the day is not doing what it's promised to do. The other important thing they must do as well, consultants and staff and public hospitals have to be given the basic capacity capacity, (coughs) in terms of beds, theatre facilities and other facilities to treat patients in time. And we have to end the treatment of patients on trolleys by putting sufficient capacity in place. We are a developed economy. Um, We're not a poor economy. Um, we just need to dedicate the funding we're using in the health service to actually give us frontline resources to treat patients. Okay. 
We'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. That's Martin Varley, who's uh, the General Secretary of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to Jerry Floyd, who's emailed us today. And Jerry says, whatever happened to my body, my choice? He says, that's OK for abortionists, but not for those who don't want vaccinations. In the past, lepers were shunned. Now it's the anti-vaxxers. Uh, Jerry says, they're in more danger from the vaccinated than we are from them. Not sure how you come to that conclusion, Jerry. but he says the HSE are protecting the system, not the public. There are people who, uh, the HSE that is, uh, evicted people from hospitals, old people from hospitals, and created COVID hotspots in nursing homes as a result. Thanks uh, for that, Jerry. As I say, I'm not sure uh, how you came to that conclusion, but one thing we do know is that the unvaccinated are much more of a risk to themselves than anybody. An unvaccinated person has a 32 times greater risk of dying in this pandemic than a vaccinated person. Uh, that's, that's very good odds uh, if you just want to look at that in terms of something that enhances your chance of life. It certainly is, and that's why the HSE is encouraging you to get vaccinated. And I've made the comments before, just an urgent call to those aren't And we have a range of activities trying to reach out to all the different groups who may not have been vaccinated. Indeed, I was in a vaccination centre in Cavan last week where they had a remote uh, pop-up in Bally James Duff uh, target to try, uh, which was quite successful over a weekend in attracting people in who wouldn't have been vaccinated. But I do make the call again to everybody uh, who we can communicate with and we are communicating with uh, to please come forward and very positively this week, we're again seeing many people come into walk-in centres and receiving their first dose, which is very encouraging. All right. Very, very encouraging. No doubt about it. Uh, but there are uh, problems uh, as a, a result of uh, the current wave and concern because of uh, the new variant, not just here, but across Europe. Facing a new threat, that is the new variant Omicron. At this point, we do not know all about this variant, but we know enough to be concerned You have read about the multiple mutations and what that might be. And we know from our experience with the Delta variant that it is a race against time. But what science tells us already is that full vaccination and boosters provide the strongest protection against COVID that is available now. We have delivered to the European Union so far more than 1 billion doses of vaccines. We are glad to see that booster campaigns have started in many member states now. Here also the good news is, you might recall that during summer, the Commission concluded the third contract with BioNTech-Pfizer about 1.8 billion doses of vaccines. Now overall, Moderna and BioNTech, from these we will have 360 million doses of mRNA vaccines that will be delivered by the end of the first quarter, 2022. This is sufficient for all fully vaccinated Europeans to get a boost. That is good news. So go get it. Go get it. Indeed, it is good news. That's the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, But until we get it, there is a problem, isn't there? One third of the European population is not vaccinated. These are 150 million people. 
This is a lot. It's an awful lot, isn't it, when you put it that way. Uh, but Ursula von der Leyen says there is a solution. I think um, it is understandable and appropriate to lead this discussion now. Um, how we can encourage and potentially think about mandatory vaccination. Mm-hmm. It's a thought, isn't it? Mandatory vaccination. Good idea, bad idea. Let's hear what the World Health Organization has to say about it. Our position in WHO is that mandatory vaccination should only be considered when um, the, the health gain that you're going to get from imposing that is very, very clear and that you've tried all other measures in order to uh, to get people vaccinated. I still personally believe that the best way is to continue engaging with people and to continue to drive that idea of an informed choice. But there are circumstances in which the threat to society, the threat to the health system, um, the threat to the economy is such that governments, having tried all other measures, are able to make that decision. And this raises real issues uh, around uh, human rights. Uh, and it's something that governments should consider extremely carefully and they need to be absolutely sure that the benefit of doing this uh, outweighs the risks and that they have done everything possible to address vaccine hesitancy and other issues and they, they feel that they have no other alternative and it has to have an objective of protecting uh, that individual or protecting society or protecting the health system. There must be very clear um, reasons why that action is being taken. Uh, and there needs to be a dialogue in a, in a, within government and within agencies and with communities around these issues. That's Dr Mike Ryan of the World Health Organisation. It's got to the stage where we're talking about it. Uh, but as he said, it's a big decision and one that has to be balanced against the human rights of people. Uh, only to be done if it's absolutely necessary. I think Jerry in Wilkinstown thinks it's absolutely ne- uh, necessary uh, because he's saying uh, keep the unvaccinated outside of premises. That may actually happen from today, whatever about forcing people to get vaccinated or making it mandatory to get vaccinated. Uh, it seems as though the recommendation from NEFID is that you will have to use your COVID cert if you're to gain entry to anything other than an essential service. Uh, that seems possible at this stage. Uh, We do know as well that uh, the COVID subcommittee on Cabinet are are meeting to consider the uh, NEFID recommendations Uh, and we may see change uh, later in the day or over the weekend uh, but uh, it seems as though we are looking at some more restrictions in the very near future whatever is decided that process is already underway Deborah is in Navin and Deborah says is anyone else feeling as disheartened as me listening to these reports about more restrictions we thought the vaccinations were the answer to all of our prayers and now it feels like we're back at square one despite following all of the guidelines it is going to be another bleak Christmas if the government accepts these recommendations. Thank you Deborah. I think the government would be very much aware of that and they'll be asking themselves will it be a bleaker Christmas or a bleaker January if they don't and therein lies the quandary. But thank you as I say for your call. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. That's our programme for this week and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.